Our scripture today comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. It's at the end of when Jesus is saying some teachings for his disciples, and it starts, Peter came and said to the Lord, If another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times. And then Jesus went on to say a parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold, together with his wife, his children, their possessions, so that the payment might be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him, saying, Have patience on me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him of the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves, who owned, owed him one hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, Pay me what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience on me, and I promise to pay you. But he refused, and then he went and threw him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what he had happened to the man, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked slave! I forgave you and all of your debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had the same mercy on your fellow slaves as I had had on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. Then Jesus said, So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. For the word of God among us, for the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. The inspection was underway, and all I could think to myself was, please, don't look under the chair. Several weeks before, I was eight or nine at the time, several weeks before, I was playing with something called oobleck. Let me show you what I'm talking about. It's this slime that you make with a junior science kit, like the one that I was given when I was eight or nine years old, and I was something of a junior scientist myself. It's an interesting slime. It's what's called a non-Newtonian fluid, meaning that it is hard. If I were to punch it, my hand won't go in, but if I pick it up and I hold it in my hand and I let it come still, it flows like a liquid. Non-Newtonian fluids, pretty cool. And so I was playing with this in my room, and I set it down. But I didn't just set it down. I set it down on the ground. But I didn't set it down on the ground in a bowl. I set it down on my mom's brand new burl carpet that had been laid in my room. It was off-white unsoiled by dirty dog paws and unfettered by messy kid hands, and now my oobleck was sitting on top of it. I didn't know it at the time. I left the room for a few hours, came back, and found it hard as a rock. 
not just hard as a rock, but on the carpet. And not just on the carpet, but in the carpet. And not just in the carpet, but in every fiber of this carpet. It was like an invincible Velcro that I could not pry up no matter how hard I tried. My heart starts beating faster and faster. And I did the only sensible thing that an eight or nine-year-old could do. And I put a big green fluffy, puffy chair on top of it. And I thought to myself, I'll just leave this chair on top of this spot in the carpet until I graduate high school and move far, far away. And that plan worked for a while until the days turned into weeks and the weeks went by and my eight or nine-year-old brain was something of a steel sieve and those thoughts sort of leaked out and I cleaned my room one day and my mom came in for inspection and normally I would sit on the big green puffy chair so that she wouldn't move it to look underneath. But instead I was seated on my bed reading Harry Potter or some other book I was interested in and all of a sudden I looked up and my heart sank and that pit in my stomach grew about 10 sizes. Do you remember this feeling as a kid when you knew you were about to be found out? Please don't. Look under the chair. She did. And I see her staring at the burl carpet, and I'm staring at her, and she says the only words that could come out of her mouth, what is this? And then she grew very quiet. I'm pretty sure she didn't want to teach me any new words that day. And I saw her face turn about 18 different shades of red, and she stomped off into the master bedroom and shut the door, and I can only imagine the screams being hurled into the pillow in that moment. And I waited outside that door until it opened. And I threw myself on the floor. Please forgive me. I'm so, so sorry. I was playing with this slime and it was this oobluck and it's cornstarch and water. And I, and I looked on the ground and got the curve and I did me and I put the green chair in the... You, you know how typical stuff when you're eight or nine years old, right? My mom was still at least five shades of red. Steam was spitting out of her ears. And she looked at me and she said, I need you to know how mad I am. She had saved for Lord knows how many months or even years for that brand new carpet. But she said, Scott, I still love you. It's going to be okay. Let's go clean it up together. Do you remember what it feels like that first time that you were forgiven for something really big? Not just like accidentally kicking the ball at your friend's head on the playground kind of forgiveness, but when you accidentally or even intentionally hurt somebody you love in a profound way and they forgive you, that kind of real meaningful forgiveness, that was my first experience. What was yours? It feels so good to be forgiven, does it not? feels so good to be forgiven. Through my life, I've been forgiven in small and really big ways by people that I kind of know and people that I love more than anything in the world. It feels really good to be forgiven. We love to be forgiven, but I ask myself frequently as I've grown up and left my junior scientist life behind, how often am I willing to let someone get oobleck on my brand new burl carpet and offer forgiveness? It's so hard to forgive when our face is multiple shades of red and steam is spitting out of our ears and someone's oobleck is hardened on our burl carpet. We love to forgive. It can be really hard. It, we love to be forgiven, but it can be really hard to forgive. Both things are true. So let's talk about forgiveness today. 
As we wrap up our series entitled Called Out, we've been looking at this month the passages from the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel for Good Churchy People, where Jesus offers His most challenging points of teaching, not for those on the outside, but those who would seek to follow after Him. And today we have this text that is kind of confusing. Is Jesus telling us to do these formulas and equations with forgiveness? And it's also kind of concerning. Is God an angry, vengeful king who throws people into tortured prison cells? But I believe this text has more grace and wisdom contained within than, than may first appear. So ponder with me what it is that Jesus is getting at when he's talking about forgiveness and this unforgiving servant. Now, I don't know if we have any ancient Israeli currency experts in the room this morning, but uh, maybe you need a refresher because you heard these terms of, of 10,000 talents and one or 100 denarii, and you might say to yourself, okay, I get it. The, the first servant owes a whole lot of money, and the second servant doesn't owe nearly as much money. It's a lot, and it's not. I, I kind of get that idea, but, but we don't really fully get it unless we understand how this currency works. So let's define some terms. A denarii is one day's wages. It's what would have been paid to a servant for one day's wage, one day's labor. So the, first, the second servant we're introduced to, there's servant A who owes 10,000 talents and servant B who owes 100 denarii. Servant B owes 100 days wages to servant A. It's not an insignificant amount of money, but it's not insurmountable in terms of debt either. It stands to reason that he could pay this off if given enough time. But servant A owes 10,000 talents. 60 denarii, meaning about three months' worth of wages, was called a mina or a mina. And then 60 of those was called a talent. A talent was, if you do the math, 15 years' worth of wages. The servant owed 10,000 talents. If you crunch those numbers, he owed just under 55 million within a million days' wages. 55 million. And the king forgives him, and he's owed a hundred days' wages, and he lords it over his friend. It reminds me of something that I have to be reminded of so many times in my life, how often I tend to minimize my own mistakes or the sins that I commit against my brother, sister, or sibling, and how often I can maximize their mistakes or the sins that I feel they've committed against me. In keeping with our junior scientist theme, we could put it this way, this question that emerges, am I looking at my mistakes through a telescope and others' mistakes through a microscope? Meaning, am I looking at my mistakes, which are actually rather large, and trying to minimize them, make them manageable? Look, it fits inside this night nice, tidy telescope. And am I taking other people's mistakes, and they're rather small, and I'm blowing them up? Look at how large they are. Do I look at my own mistakes through a telescope and others' mistakes through a microscope? Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, sometimes my sister or brother or sibling commits a mistake, sins against me in a way that's not so insignificant. And this is true. Sometimes, sometimes these mistakes, these sins, are, are, are more than 100 days' wages. They're not so easy to rectify. 
So is Jesus telling us to be passive doormats in our theology, to just dole out forgiveness, no questions asked, no behavior change, just everybody do whatever you want, and it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Are we supposed to be an it's fine kind of people? Are we supposed to be a kind of people who simply forgive and forget, as we say? I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. In fact, if we understand the full breadth of this teaching moment, if we go back and read the rest of chapter 18, we'll find that right before this moment, Jesus is actually talking about the importance of stepping into conflict and conflict resolution as people called to follow after Jesus. Followers of Jesus are called to step into conflict and not away from it. Jesus says that when we have a problem with someone, we're supposed to take it to them directly. And then, if that doesn't work, we involve another layer, then another layer, then another layer. But for Jesus, we're always trying to move towards reconciliation and personal peace. Forgiveness in Jesus' mind is about moving towards reconciliation and personal peace. And sometimes they're both available, and sometimes we might only be able to have one. Let's talk about that for a moment. Forgiveness that births reconciliation has three really important ingredients that we can see in our Scripture today. It begins with confrontation, approaching the person, the king calling out the servant, hey, you owe me 55 million days wages. Now, for some of us, this is a hard first step to take. Very few of us love confrontation, and for those that do, that's great for you. The rest of us are terrified of it. But I think Jesus is clear in saying that if we want to achieve reconciliation, we're going to have to be willing to take that first faithful step of confronting the conflict that's before us. It introduces, reconciliation introduces accountability. The king, the master, freely forgives the debt of the first servant and offers him a new way of living. Hey, why don't you stop living with this hanging over your head? Why don't you just stop living in this world where debts are counted and maintained in this way? And why don't you live in a different way? And lastly, Forgiveness that births reconciliation leads to repentance. And this is where servant A gets it wrong. He goes right back to the old habits, the old ways of living. He goes to servant B and says, where's my hundred denarii? And Jesus is saying, don't be like servant A. Forgiveness that births reconciliation begins with confrontation, introduces accountability, and leads to repentance. But maybe reconciliation isn't on the table for you. Have you ever been harmed, wronged, abused, uh, sinned against in a way so profound and that person is not available for reconciliation for whatever reason? Is there a person like that in your life? I can think of two or three. Who is it for you? So does that mean that forgiveness is off the table for us? Does that mean even though I know I will probably never reconcile in the flesh with this person in my life, am I, am I not allowed to experience forgiveness? There's a second side of forgiveness that Jesus is preaching as well, and that's a forgiveness that leads to personal peace. There's something interesting that happens in the story, and it has to do with pronouns. Can I nerd out with my English uh, degree for a little bit here? Um, It introduces, the parable introduces servant A and servant B. It's pretty clear that there's two servants in the story, but then as soon as it starts talking about their interaction, the titles are dropped. There's no names introduced. There's no proper nouns. It's just, it says this, but he refused. Then he went and threw him into a prison until he would pay off the debt. 
Now, it'd be natural to say we know how those he's are supposed to be assigned. There's a way to read this story where it's servant A didn't forgive servant B, and servant A took servant B and threw servant B into prison. You know, you can line those up that way. But what if it's ambiguous for a reason? What if he, meaning servant A, refused and he went and threw him into prison until he would pay a debt? What if it's talking about the same person the whole time? What if sometimes we withhold forgiveness from our own souls and from our own lives, and in so doing, we keep ourselves trapped? And our hands are around our own throats, and we're throwing ourselves into prison, and we're tightening the chains on ourselves because we're unwilling to move past the wrongs and the sins and the mistakes that someone has committed against us. And there's really only one actor in that story. Is my unforgiveness robbing me of personal peace? Not forgiveness in the sense of reconciling and holding hands and skipping off into the sunset, but forgiveness in, in terms of I'm not going to let you live rent-free in my head anymore. I'm not going to let this moment dictate the rest of my life. I'm not going to let this pain keep me in chains for every day that I'm given from here on after. I'm going to allow forgiveness to heal me, to set me free. Because I have a God that says I'm worthy of that. Is my unforgiveness robbing me of personal peace? And then, of course, there's the wrinkle. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about loving your enemies. Someone came up to me after outdoor worship and asked, is it possible to be your own worst enemy? Absolutely. I would say, is it possible for us to lack forgiveness for ourselves? Absolutely. Maybe the person that you need to forgive the most is yourself for something you think you some sin you committed, some mistake that you believe you've made, and you've been holding yourself in bondage and chains, imprisoned all of these years. And a loving God is inviting you to a different kind of life, a different, different kind of rhythm and routine. Because see, there's the bookends of this passage this morning where Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven times. And it sounds like this really abundant grace, this really abundant mercy and forgiveness. But then there's the ending where the king throws the, man, the servant into prison to be tortured. Whoa, that doesn't sound like the God that Jesus normally preaches. What do we do with that? At the end of the story, when it talks about the servant being thrown into prison, the phrase that's used is that the king handed him over, handed him over. It's a phrase that's used frequently in Scripture when God is not actively doing something to somebody, but rather God is allowing them to use their human agency, to use their free will and live as they so desire. So it's like the king is saying, if you want to live in a world where debts are counted, where mercy is not an option, where revenge and punishment are tools for what you think you call justice, if that's the world you want to live in, fine. You can live in that world. We don't have to read this as God saying, I'm sending you there. Rather, you're sending yourself. 
When Jesus says we need to forgive 70 times 7, he's not asking us to pull out our calculator app on our phone and to do the math and say, have I hit my limit yet? Instead, he's saying there is an abundance of forgiveness and grace and mercy. There's a different way of living out there where you can forgive a whole heck of a lot and still not be done. You don't have to live in this debt-ridden world, this no-mercy world, this revenge-and-punishment world. There's a different way to live. Jesus so frequently tries to call us to a new way of seeing ourselves as not individuals, but as belonging to a beloved community, where it's hard to tell where one of us stops and another person starts. It's what Bishop Desmond Tutu called the the African principle of Ubuntu, I am because we are. Jesus says forgiveness is part of the work of that life and community where we forgive 70 times 7. We live in a different rhythm and routine. We are called to give that which we receive, to continue a cycle of forgiveness that God initiated and that we are given grace to participate in. It's kind of like Ublek. See, Ublek is this interesting slime. And while it is a little liquidy, If you take it in your hands and you keep it on the move, you actually get to hold it. In fact, if I kept it moving and I handed it to a friend and they did the same, we'd get to hold it. Now, if I stop it moving for even a second, if I stop to look at it, if I try to claim it for myself and just let it sit in my hand, I lose it. I think forgiveness is like Ublek. We're called to keep forgiveness on the move, to not keep it for ourselves. Ironically, the moment I try to keep it for myself, the moment I let it sit still, I lose it. But as long as I keep it moving, handing it off, receiving it, keeping the cycle going, this ublek, this forgiveness is mine to keep as well. May we be a people who are called to handle forgiveness like ublek, to keep forgiveness on the move. May we be a people who, are, who allow ourselves to get a little oobleck on our brand new burl carpet, to offer an abundance of forgiveness, and to choose a new way of living. Amen.